from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Woo! It's like, I don't even know what's going on anymore. I just feel like... <laughs> Is it May? Is it about to be June? Yeah. You know, I it's just I just like thought about it for a second. I was like, where are we? It's just, <laughs> you know, holy shit, we made it uh, to the middle of May. <laughs> I just, you know, had that whole, you know, I just I was also thinking, you know, when we were starting the podcast, I was like, I can't just be like, Joanna, Zach, how are you guys doing again? It's like how I opened that podcast all the time. So then I just thought, wow, yeah. we're here. Just go for it. <laughs> just go for it. But- here we are on a tiny blue speck in the midst of a indifferent void. Yeah. Anyhow, what'd you guys drink? No, just kidding. No, but no, you know what? You can start. What? Yeah, what have you been up to, Zach? Like, what's, That's true. Give us, some, give us some updates. You were in Napa, we saw, so you know, I just follow in my footsteps. I was. I actually, uh, I, I'm going to brag. It's not even a humble brag. I got to drink wine with uh, future NBA Hall of Famer Carmelo Anthony. It's pretty cool. Oh. Uh, yeah, I was at an event. <sighs> at, what a uh, disappointment on the Knicks. What a disappointment. <laughs> Do we know that he's going to be a future Hall of Famer? Or you just... It, yeah, I mean, most people... Yeah, I mean, he was great. He will be. A very, very, very high probability. Anyhow, we won't, we won't, we won't discuss Carmelo Anthony's basketball legacy uh, here on this podcast. I, I bet you can find other Good podcasts call. out there if you want, folks. The Yeah, I was out there for an event at Robert Mondavi. Just kind of they were doing a big old party, and uh, someone thought it was a good idea to invite me, which was very kind of them. Thank you. I mean, is he like a Knicks fan? I mean, no, sorry, not a Knicks fan. Is he a, a Mondavi fan? What was he doing there? Well, you I mean, Carmelo is a huge wine fan. And- I know he's a huge wine fan. But it, like, did you did you ask him? Like, is he a Napa fan? Is he a, did he like did he know Mondavi well? Like, what? what you know, got I wasn't I wasn't put in a position where I could grill him on his uh, oh, reason for being have. there. Um, yeah, well, you know, yeah, next time if they they'll know not to invite you to avoid that exact situation. <laughs> Probably, you know, I just got to be a journalist. Always a journalist, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so no, but um, you know, I think they. He, they saw him as someone who is obviously a prominent uh, wine lover in the in the basketball yeah. community, a guy who is really kind of instrumental in ushering in, I think, kind of the modern era of NBA uh, stars and NBA players as okay. really kind of wine influencers. And so, yeah, the banana yeah, boat crew. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, it was cool. So uh, it had obviously a lot of Madavi wine when I was at the winery and then uh, actually went uh, after the event to uh, Cadet, which is a great wine bar in uh, right in downtown Napa, like a block from where I was staying, which was very convenient, and nice. uh, drank some non-Napa wine uh, with him and some other folks, uh, including a uh, beautiful uh, Cap Franc from the Loire Valley, from one of my favorite producers there, Arno Lambert. Also, oh, shout cool. out real quick to uh, Bay Grape, which uh, opened a shop up in Napa relatively recently. I got oh, to yes. Check that out. For the first time, um, we've obviously talked uh, on the podcast a little bit about, and certainly on the site, I uh, talked about uh, the folks behind that, but uh, they've put a wine shop in Napa that features like almost no Napa wine, which is kind of cool. It's a little bit off the beaten path, and uh, definitely like in talking to them, their their audience is you know very much people who work in the wine trade in Napa, and not so much people who go to Napa for wine. So uh, it's kind of an interesting break from what is the rest of Napa for sure. Right, so you're saying not people who go to Napa for wine, more people who work in Napa. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like obviously versus consu- yeah. consumers. Yeah. A certain kind of wine drinker might find their way there, but they are like not somewhere you would end up by accident. Like there's no foot traffic. Uh, it's kind of a little bit outside of the like downtown core. And like, it's very clear when you walk in, you're like, Oh, okay. This is a very different vibe than uh, like, there's obviously some other wine shops in like downtown Napa that focus much more on Napa wine to say nothing of all the other tasting rooms, restaurants, wine bars, et cetera. Yeah. So they're just doing something a little different. And so wait, so can you, so what exactly was the Mondavi thing again? 
I mean, it was kind of an event to, to, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into this because it's a, a whole long conversation, but basically, um, you know, when Constellation bought Mondavi and more recently over the last few years, they've really been kind of interested in restoring, um, you know, restoring the prominence of that brand and especially Tokalon, uh, the sort of iconic vineyard that's at the heart of the brand in the same way that we've seen with a few other companies, the way, you know, Gallo has done with Louis Martini and uh, Monterosso and that uh, we've seen with like uh, Inglenook and Ravenswood mm-hmm. and some of those other brands that were, you know, kind of at one point really turned into grocery store brands and now uh, a recognition has come like, wait, we have these great historic properties. We have these iconic vineyards, et cetera. We really want to turn these, we want to kind of get the focus back on the the really high end, um, you know, kind mm-hmm. of dovetails it interestingly with our conversation about, you know, can, can you find luxury brands in, you know, from these wineries that have the grocery store association, you know, we won't, yeah. we won't pass judgment here on that, but you can listen to that podcast if you're curious, but yeah, it was, it was essentially an attempt to kind of reset the narrative, I guess would be one way to put it. Or that I means part of their effort to do that. Oh, cool. And so basically you drank those wines and some del- delicious wines at Cadet. Anything else besides your Napa weekend? Oh, I can't even remember. That was a big weekend for me. I got away from <laughs> yeah. it. was just me, no kids, no wife. It was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, that's, that's all I can just remember. Just you and Mellow. Just you and Mellow, yeah. Just me and Mellow, yeah. What about you, Joanna? <sighs> Um, yeah, for, for me, uh, I think the, the best things, uh, that I drank in this past week, uh, we mixed up some last words last weekend, which I've never made before. Yes. And were you hanging out with Tim McCarty? No, I wasn't. He loves the last word. I was making them at home. Um, I think I used the wrong gin. Speaking of gin, I didn't use the right gin. I think it was a little, oh, red door gin. Never heard of it. Um, I got it at the office. <laughs> <laughs> took it from here. I took it from here. I think it was just a little too, the whole thing was a little too peppery yeah. for me, I think, mm. with the chartreuse. Um, but I would make again. I like that. I, I like, I that like cocktail. the Yeah, I like the drink itself. Also had some, um, a lovely Assertico this weekend, too. Mm-hmm. I don't drink a lot of them, but this seemed really good. It's from Atma, I think is the name of the producer. Okay. And... Um, yeah, it was just really easy drinking, really delicious. I want to drink more Assertico. That is cool. Yeah. It's a great summertime wine for sure. So for me, uh, so over the weekend, last weekend, there was a birthday party and I was actually in charge of supplying the cocktail recipes. So the cocktail, the, the cocktail that the... There was a theme to this birthday party though, right? Yes. The theme was <laughs> basically, so it's, so the woman whose birthday party it was, she is a, a cookbook author. And she wrote, she has a book coming out soon called like Modern Jewish Comfort Food or something. Okay. And prior to that, she had a, a cookbook that came out that was the, was, was called Modern Jewish Baker. And she, I, you know, Naomi's been good friends with her for a while and Shannon and I have become good friends. Anyways, her husband emailed me and said she wants to have Manischewitz in one of the cocktails. Oh my goodness. And I was like, ooh, interesting. So I, we basically landed on a New York sour, uh-huh. right, with the, with the float. I love that. Uh, which was going to be awesome um, until their bartender bailed at 7, and the party was supposed to be at 7.30 because he accidentally, you know, I think this is what happens when you're in the oranges. People are flakes. And so I think that, you know, <laughs> sorry, the oranges of New Jersey. So anyways, <laughs> so, you know, they just, I don't know, they can't get on a train. They have issues. I, you know, so he had double booked their party and someone else's. Maybe there's just no bartenders in the oranges. I don't know. So anyways, so. Uh, so basically, they uh, the bartender wound up being 
her father-in-law, who was the nicest guy, but I went up trying to teach him at the last minute how to do the the, the, float. the float with the spoon, and he mm-hmm. seemed to get it. Uh, until I came back 30 minutes later and he was just taking the shovel and said, Thump, just dumping the red wine into the cocktail. He's like, yeah, whatever. I'll mix this together anyways. No one cares. She wants it to, she, she likes that Manischewitz is in it. It was funny. Uh, the cocktail was still good, uh, but it was just a hilarious, hilarious, uh, exercise so that That's was my so my weekend and then um actually, sorry it was a bat mitzvah though right yeah, it was bat mitzvah themed okay she wanted to have a bat mitzvah themed party gotcha it was pretty ridiculous i think it's an important detail here <laughs> yes, it was a bat mitzvah themed party okay so like all of the all the flowers arrangements were in empty manischewitz bottles there was a photo booth there was a theme she got picked up on a chair i mean it was That's so fun. ridiculous <laughs> so lots of fun uh and then uh, recently this week, I got to have a really delicious older wine. Um, You've been drinking a lot of old wine lately, Yeah, guy. so it was cool. So I so I hadn't been to Keens in a really long time. It's so awesome. It's the best. I kind of think it's the best. Keen's like I decided last night, I think New it's York the best, City. Joanna. It's the best place. Like better than Luger's, oh, for yeah. sure. Way Hands better down. than Luger's. I kind of think like better than all of the steakhouses in New York. The bar there is great too. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that I, I think the last time I went to Keens was even was pre Vine Pair. So like I even wasn't really like that aware of wine lists and things like that in the same way. So they really don't mark the wines up that much, really, which is kind of amazing. And so they had this bottle of Master Bernardino Radici. 1998 on the list and it was insanely well priced and i was like yeah we'll do that mm-hmm. uh and then of course they had to find the bottle because <laughs> yeah. they didn't know where it was <laughs> and that took like 20 minutes do they have an extensive list i can't remember it's not that big i think no one orders this wine okay. like because if you look like the their list is like huge bordeaux and napa and then they had like i would say six or seven like rhone wines Two or three northern, mostly like southern Rhone. Sure. And then they had some Barolo, like two or three. And then there's just, there's like Campania. And it was just this. Yeah. Just a random body, bottle of Alianico in case you somehow stumbled across it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, so when I first ordered it, the guy was like, wait, can you please tell me the number next to the wine? <laughs> so I told him. And then like they go, it, it literally took like 20 minutes. I had to come up and be like, I'm, we're really sorry that your your food's already come. Like we're literally, we're searching for the wine. And they came back and I was like, whew, I wonder if they even knew this was on the list anymore. But it was awesome. Cool. It was just, I mean, that wine ages beautifully. Yeah. Like really beautifully. And then actually we had one other really cool wine experience this week, Joanna, that you and I had together, which was that. Mr. Billicart. Oh my goodness, yes. Came into the office. Um, it's actually his handle on Instagram, folks. I'm not like making it up. But uh, Matthew, Billic- right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Billicart Samon came into the office and we got to try their new, the new release of their 2008 Blanc de Blanc. And we had to taste it against the 1999. 1999. Which was pretty. Awesome. End of 2008, no? Yeah, so we had the 08 and then the 99. Oh, sorry. And then the, what was the third bottle? Uh, just the, the non-vintage, right. which was great. And again, that's another one of these brands. Zach, I don't know. I mean, you probably you know know this as well from probably selling those wines. But like, they're very well-priced. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing how well-priced those wines are, yeah. um, especially yeah. compared to other champagnes. I just – I was blown away by – when he would t- when he told us, like, the, the vintage was, like, one – was it like 140 or something? Yeah, 140 or 160 or something. And I was like, wait, what? That's stupid. Yeah. yeah. 
And for a wine that that, that so old, good. Was, yes, it was just stupid. Yeah. So very cool. Yeah. Awesome. So, Zach, yeah. uh, on, I just want everyone to know the shade about the oranges was mostly directed to Keith, who's yeah. sitting here in the studio, who lives <laughs> in the oranges. See, <laughs> so people didn't know. That wasn't, I don't have actually beef with the oranges, especially not West Orange, the best orange. Anyways, so continuing, uh, Zach, this, this uh, topic this week comes from you, mm-hmm. which uh, is based on your... Um, your most experience. recent experience in Napa. <laughs> so I, why don't you set it up? Sure, sure. So yeah, I think um, you know one thing that we've we've talked a lot about because you know Adam, you've had the opportunity to be in Napa a couple of times recently. Yep. Um, obviously, uh, I've been down there before as well. It, you know, there, there's so much of American wine culture in certain ways that even if it isn't directly tied into Napa, is still kind of reflects what's going on in Napa. And the thing that I was struck by in my time down there, even though I only went to a couple of wineries outside of the sort of event I was there for, is the way that the experience in tasting rooms has uh, really evolved. And I think we were seeing this pre-pandemic, but it's really, I think, accelerated through uh, reopenings after, you know, kind of during and after the pandemic or wherever we are now. And it's this kind of refocusing of the tasting room experience from what it was previously, which I think even in Napa was much more of a, you maybe make an appointment, but often some places you don't, you show up, you kind of are standing at a bar, or maybe there's some chairs, maybe there's a couple of nice tables, etc. But you're kind of walking through a, a flight of wines, you know, you're paying whatever the price is. And then you kind of finish and you kind of go, okay, well, you know, I'm going to buy some wine. I'm going to join the wine club, whatever. You move on. And your time in the tasting room is, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour, maybe if you're kind of stretching it out. And now so many of the tasting rooms in Napa, and you're starting to see this spread outside of Napa to not just other California regions, but I'm seeing it up here in Washington and in Oregon with some of the higher end producers here as well, which is much more of this like idea of the wine tasting appointment as much more like a restaurant reservation. So you have time, you have a table. You have a server. You have courses, potentially. Mm-hmm. You have a kind of whole process in which you are walked through the wines. And along with it, you have a price tag that now readily exceeds $100 in a lot of oh, yeah. places. And often what you are getting <laughs> truly is maybe a few bites of food. You're getting maybe walked back into a barrel room. And it's very interesting to me. I am the wrong person to answer this question, which is part of the reason why I want to ask you guys and and maybe also, of course, listeners, if you have thoughts. It is unclear to me if this is actually what the general wine drinking, you know, kind of wine tourism public wants, or if it's merely the sort of path we are being shepherded down and it's just kind of what remains. Because to me, the added the value add of a few bites of food and staring at a bunch of barrels is not really worth the extra you're paying for it or whatever, but I'm not the one who they're aiming for quite obviously. And and so this is kind of where I wanted to start this conversation, which is sort of, you know, do you see this trend as being responsive to what people are saying they want out of these visits? Or is it much more a kind of wineries calculating, Hey, wait a second, you know, how do we capture even more revenue from the person who's setting foot inside our door? Because quite honestly, that person is a hugely valuable customer to us. And the second they walk inside, we have, you know, we have them captive in a sense. And we can, you know, why settle for 60 or $70 for a tasting when we can get $150 for a slightly more elaborate, um, you know, kind of presentation. I'm happy to jump in here because I have never been to Napa. And I will share my thoughts. You or me until like 
two years ago. <laughs> I've been to Sonoma, but I've never done the Napa thing. So yeah, well, Sonoma, it's great. Yeah. Sonoma's going that way too, though. I mean, it's, <laughs> but yeah, it is. It's not it is. just Napa, like I said. No, no, no. Uh, it all is Virginia. It's happening in Virginia too. But yeah. but please. Well, I guess my thought is. If I'm going to Napa and I'm making a vacation out of it mm-hmm. and I want to go to these places and have these experiences, then I want it to be a little bit more elaborate than just sitting there and having some wine, right? Mm-hmm. I, and and I think I do think that for a lot of people who are going to Napa, they know they're going to drop a lot of money. Yeah. And so, you know, what's the difference? Yeah. Like 150 is really probably not much if yeah. you get to see the barrel room and you get to have a little bit more of an experience than you would than going to like a, a wine bar or something. Yeah. So it's really interesting, Zach, when you proposed this topic, I wasn't sure where you were going with it. Mm-hmm. And this is an exact conversation that was had between myself and some of the other people when I was in Napa the weekend before you at the Chateau Montalena anniversary. Mm-hmm. And... I really think the reason that people in the trade especially seem to have issue with this Mm -hmm. is because these experiences are not for us. Like we are used to going and trying to bang out as many visits as possible, especially if you've ever been on like a press trip or things like that where they put like three or four visits in a day, which is really intense and not always that fun. But like I think trade, especially people like yourself who've also worked on the floor, get really good at at tasting and assessing wine very quickly, Mm -hmm. right? right? And so, like, you don't need the pomp and circumstance. I think, though, for consumers, what Joanna's saying is really true. And it seems to me from the people I was talking to, they've recognized that demand because of what was happening in in Napa pre-COVID, which was that basically you had a bunch of people who were saying – I don't like being rushed at the tasting bar for 70 to to $100 a tasting. Mm-hmm. And so you actually had pe- like less people who were doing that because they were starting to complain that it felt like you're not getting that one-on-one treatment. Like I get why they want to charge me that for the wines, but like, you know, the person's talking, to, they're dumping the wines in my glass and they're turning and they're talking to someone else and dumping the wines in their glass, then maybe they come back to us. And even though that probably is still somewhat of the treatment that you get at a lot of these tastings where, like, the server comes, they pour the wine, they walk away, it feels more sort of hand, high touch and hands-on. Right. And for 40 to 50 more bucks, sometimes even 100, people seem to enjoy it more, right? They, they have a more pleasurable experience. And what a lot of wineries were telling me they were, they've learned over the past few years is people really want to hang out. Yes. And I think a lot of that also has to do with – I mean, I don't know what it was like when you were there and how you got around, but especially over the last year, you know, of like that we sort of came out of COVID, then Omicron, whatever, right? I've just noticed in Napa, it is almost impossible to get an Uber. Mm. Um, so most of the time you're driving, yeah, right? And I think a lot of people sort of realize, okay, well, if I'm, if I'm here, this is my vacation and I would like to drink. Then I'd like to be at a place where I can like hang out, hang out have some drinks, have some food, maybe sober up a little bit, have some water, mm-hmm. hang out with my friends, and then we'll drive back to the hotel and then we'll go to dinner. Yeah. You know, I think that that seems to be more than like I'm going to bounce from, you know, when I have, I have a 10 a.m. appointment, then I have like a one o'clock appointment, <clears throat> then I have like a three o'clock appointment, and then we go home. I, I think there, are, I, but what I would, what I would say here is I think that. They shouldn't totally get rid of that because there are always people that do want that, especially trade. Right. Yeah. Right. Who are like, look, I don't need this. Like, I don't need to sit in the cabana for five hours. <laughs> or just in the barrel room. 
Right. Yeah. But there are people that want that. So I think the wine, it's, it's going to be a delicate balance. I, I definitely felt that when I, we went to Ashes and Diamonds, where like the entire experience is this like very, you know, like you sit and you have lunch and blah, blah, blah. And it was nice. But I thought to myself, like, if I wasn't with friends and I was with trade, I would just want to pop in, try the wines and leave. Right. I'm actually reminded reminded of a time that I did go to Napa. A, a long time ago, yeah. but I had a very, very nice experience, and it was like a long afternoon type yeah. of thing, and we hung out on the patio, and that was really nice. But I could see not wanting to do that for every place. For every place. Yeah. For well, every and place. I think that's the interesting thing to me is that my perception from like the first time I went to Napa in my early mid-20s, I guess, um, through like, you know, again, through my kind of last visit even pre-pandemic was that maybe maybe I was just kind of seeing it from the wrong way, not just from my own perspective as someone in the trade, but also just kind of the setting I was going tasting in was that, you know, people really wanted to like, I got the sense that a lot of people came down there and they were like, okay, you know, we have a weekend in Napa and I have, you know, 15 wineries I want to visit or I have 10 wineries I want to visit. And the only way to do that is to just kind of bang them out. And maybe what's true is that that segment of the population is still there. They're just not as uh, big as they seemed and or people's you know preferences uh, and realities have changed. Maybe, as you said, the, the lack of rideshare options and Napa in particular has has kind of given people impetus to stay put. But I do think it's also possible that it's been driven in a different way by by the wineries. And, and it's in this, which is in particular in a place like Napa, I wonder if they were if wineries were seeing a sort of. Um, a problem in basically a combination of sort of palate fatigue and not really putting the wines in the right context. And you think about, you know, uh, the value of something where you can encourage people to take their time with what are expensive wines, which are, you know, kind of in generally pretty intense wines, complicated wines, and wines that in many cases, you know, you're really only going to fully enjoy with with food in some cases. And Trying to get people, and I've had this experience in many places, including just doing tastings with people in, you know, not at in a restaurant setting, is you know if you don't, it's very hard for for people, even some professionals, to say nothing of kind of just uh, enthusiastic wine drinkers to taste a wine out of that context and say, okay, but yes, maybe there are things about this mm. wine that you don't like in this moment, but when you have it with the right dish, it will work, and that kind of leap is just tricky for a lot of people including for me sometimes like it's not always apparent to me when i taste a wine that i am gonna like it with the right food or something or that it's gonna you know be more balanced with the right food or things like that and so uh, it could be that some of what we're seeing is that i just also think the last piece of it is maybe kind of what you both have kind of gotten at which is you know it's this continued desire of Napa in particular to just so entwine itself with a kind of luxury and a kind of high-end experience. And in the end, kind of like jostling elbows with people at a tasting bar is just not a luxe experience, right? Like, it's not. It's not what people... And you're right. People are like, okay, if I'm paying $20, sure, fine. I will, you know, kind of find room for myself at this tasting bar. But I'm paying you know, 50, 70, $100 to taste your wines. I want a nice, comfortable chair. I want to take my time. I want someone to come serve me. I want, you know, I just want all those, those sort of, uh, the accoutrement of, of a luxury experience that I, that I feel like I'm paying for. I feel like I've flown to Napa. I've driven to Napa for what's interesting to me in the last, the other piece of this that I want your guys' thoughts on is, and Adam, you mentioned you were seeing this in Virginia. I said, you know, I've seen this yeah. in, in Washington and in Oregon. Do we think that this is going to become a more accepted way that wine tastings are are held in 
you know, in wineries all over the country? Or do you still think it's going to be really just a, a, a small handful of them that really kind of aspire to that luxury image, if not reality? So I kind of want to take your question, but I want to turn it on its head a little sure. bit on what you had said earlier, which is Napa influencing the rest of the country. And I'm actually kind of the more I've been thinking about this, I actually wonder if a lot if some of it's the reverse. Hmm. So if you think about what's happened in the past like 10 years, we've gotten really used to like breweries as third places mm-hmm. and lots of places in the country now have also had wineries open near them. Right. Mm-hmm. But not at the massive amount that you have in Napa. Right. So in Napa, there's just there's such a large amount of wineries that have opened that you can really you can do what we've talked about this bouncing from you know place to place to place even in you know sort of virginia which is gro- growing up in terms of wineries like it's not the closest drive from like early mountain to barbersville and then you know barbersville to blenheim or something like that right they they're not close together so it's harder to jump and people have taken to being like my day is going to be going to early mountain and sitting all day and having some food and drinking with friends and maybe doing the tasting start but then getting a bottle and that happens a lot on the north fork and in the finger lakes and you see a lot less people who are like doing the tour mm-hmm. because they just don't have the large amount of wineries side by side like you have in Napa. Right. And so I wonder if now when people have come back to Napa that's what they now expect because that's what they're getting in the wine region that's closest to them. That's what's happening in their lo- their local wine region, right? And Napa's like, okay, cool, you want this, but we're now gonna, but we'll do it Lux, right? So you don't have the same, right? Most of these wineries, like, there's a bunch in the Hudson Valley. I know people like to go to now. Like, they have a pizza oven, and like, people are slinging right. pizzas, and like, there, it's very chill, and there's picnic benches, whatever. So Napa's like, we'll do you one better. Here, here it is with restoration hardware, furniture, and like, you know, caviar and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's still that same kind of experience that I think people have now gotten used to. So I wonder if this is finally other places influencing Napa as Mm. opposed to Napa influencing them. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I also I wanted to ask Zach um, to one of your earlier points about, you know, the winery saying, you know, people aren't having a good experience. And so we need to add this experience as part of it because and pair with food because, you know, the wines won't show a certain way if you don't have it. Do you do you actually think that the experience before for without food was leading to unhappy customers or like not converting to sales? And that's why I will completely plead ignorance on on a sort of macro sense here. And, and again, listeners, if you have some more firsthand experience, if you work for wineries or you have kind of some of this information, um, it would be super interesting to us to have it, podcast at vinepair.com. Um, but I would say that it's not necessarily that I think you had like, you know, hordes of angry uh, customers or that you had necessarily like, you know, these real struggles to convert sales. But I think to tie this conversation back into when we had a, a few months ago about the challenges that Napa in particular and sort of premium wine regions are facing as, um, you know, some of their customer base is aging perhaps out of drinking and they're not necessarily replacing those consumers with younger consumers or maybe struggling to do so a little bit that sometimes you in the end have to kind of make a different argument for yourself and or just present things differently. And it might be that putting the wine, because again, if someone is buying if someone is at isn't visiting Napa, right, and they decide, okay, I we're at this winery and we really like the wine and we want to get it and we, you know, we're we're gonna buy, you know, six bottles or something, right? 
you have a lot of ways as a as a winery in Napa to kind of close the deal, right? There you can do you can offer them shipping deals, you can offer them, you know, maybe a bulk discount um, or you know a, a quantity discount. Bulk sounds a little bit wrong. Um, you can offer, but but part of it is also just kind of putting the wine in a context that is going to feel replicable to those people and. And so it's like, hey, here's this wine, here's this dish or this bite of food, but it's you know meant to kind of be a small scale version of something larger that you would you would order or what or make or whatever. Here's the context ready made for you. So buy this wine, and now you know when you get home, and you know a month from now, three months from now, a year from now, a decade from now, you want to revisit that bottle of wine. Maybe you make a note of what you had with it. You know, it, you're just kind of simplifying. It's it's a it's a more in your face version of you know sending a menu card with the wines or you know having that stuff on your website right you're just kind of giving people this the the ideal in your eyes context for when to enjoy the yep. wine and i think Making that that is something that napa right. has at times struggled with because you know in some ways it's like when you taste especially at some of these wineries and you have a flight of five different cabernet sauvignons and it's a little hard to distinguish them you might in the end make a, a purchase decision based on the pairing and you liked the pairing the best and you thought that was the thing you enjoyed most and that's going to sway your purchase. Um, and, and without some of those context clues, you might, you know, you, you might convert sales because, you know, you're giving people, you know, you're waiving their tasting fee or something with enough of a purchase or a membership, uh, you know, signing up for a club or something like that. But anything that leaves people with a, a more complete experience, a, a more a sense of, I have enjoyed this wine immensely in a, a kind of wine drinking context with food and, you know, relaxed chat chatting with my friends my family whatever like you're just going to i think leave people more satisfied than simply yeah this was the wine i liked best at the at the standing you know at the tasting bar and i bought three bottles because it was mm -hmm. i get three bottles and waive the tasting fee or i'm paying the tasting fee and leaving empty-handed and i think that's a lot of what you saw prior to this it's like a lot of what the sort of uh, the experience was for a lot of people is like sort of purchase is not under duress, but kind of a like, I guess I should buy stuff because I've already, I've already kind of committed the $75 for the tasting fee. So that's almost one bottle of wine. I might as well get two more. And then they kind of, you know, it just kind of, I think it left a, not a sour taste, but maybe people didn't leave those experiences feeling like super satisfied. And it may be that this new model is just more satisfactory to people. And that goes a long way to not just driving sales, but, you know, driving word of mouth and all those things. No, that makes sense. I think. I think that there's a lot here that maybe they, you know, th there's there's a lot we don't know because we don't have the data right. of like, are they selling more? Are they selling less? Yeah, I'd like to know that. I'd be super curious to know if people, you know, who work at wineries and are able to and listen to the podcast are able to share that with me. That I think that'd be very interesting to hear. I kind of feel like if you have a really great experience at a place, you're more likely to be a long term member of the yeah. club, right? Or you know, because you you just remember the experience and it's it's something that you just continue to reflect back on. Um, I think you probably also have time to like more slowly reflect on each wine. So there's time with that white. You're not like sort of slugging it down before you're moving on to their five different Cabernets, right. um, which again, I think is what then causes people to want to stay members. I think, you know, one of the places that everyone says does this so well is Scribe, you know? Had a great experience at Scribe. Yeah. I mean, and that you can hang out there all day and you're, you know, you, you can only go when, once you're a member, but like people enjoy the experience so much they want to go. And again, it's that idea of the third place. And I think Napa's starting to figure that out, that especially for the larger brands that can do it 
it means a lot to consumers. I get if you're a small winemaker and you have a tiny tasting room and like you're really still just trying to get your wines known by people, you're going to still do this sort of like hour tasting, 30 minutes, whatever it is, you know, without the food and things like that. But if you have the ability, I do think it is what a lot of consumers are craving now. They want this, you know, experience that feels more high end, that feels high touch, all those things that you're and just leisurely and leisurely, right. That you're yeah. just not getting with the person behind the tasting bar. Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, we'd love to hear what you guys think uh, out there in the audio realm. So hit us up at podcast and uh, let us know what you think about what's sort of happening in the world of tastings when it comes to wineries. And if you work at a tasting room and you got dirt, let us know. We'd love to publish it. <laughs> All right. Uh, talk to you both on Friday. Talk to you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.